Bright Metal Audio presents The Blood Miles by Andrew Moody, read by the author. Volume 1. Chapter 12. Prediger gave me a room that opened onto the courtyard. It had a bed, a sink, a small table and a chair. When he left me I went out and looked at the fountain and the tiny lights that had come on in the trees. There was a smell of flowers in the air and the sound of singing coming from some other part of the complex. It would have been a good place to rest if there was any possibility of it, but I knew that there was no rest for me amongst these people. Even without the scan, they already knew what I'd done. So I waited until the place went quiet and slipped out the way we had come in. There was a bright half-moon and the air was clear enough up in the mountains for me to see by it. Soon, as I followed the track back through the trees, I came across a smaller track branching away to the southwest and took it. I had no real plan, no food and no water. I suppose I must have thought of getting back to the pipeline or finding some town where I could live. But really I wasn't thinking very clearly about anything. All I really had in my head was that Central was on to me and I needed to escape. But the stupidity of this way of escaping became clear to me pretty quickly. By the time I was halfway down the mountain, the single path I was on began branching this way and that, and signposts to Didasco Summit, which I had just come from, seemed to have been defaced or turned to indicate other paths. Most of the time this didn't affect me. I was headed down the mountain, not up. But I could see what some of these detours would mean for travellers headed in the other direction. When I explored one path, I found that it led over a cliff. Another, which I didn't want to get too close to, seemed to have human bones scattered around it. Lower down, I had a distant view through the trees of savages dancing wildly round a campfire, their whoops and screams fading into the night as I pressed on. And then I had other things to worry about. As the slope began to level off, the air got colder and darker. Before I knew it, I was in a fog. Now my only sense of direction came from guesses about the slope and the location of the moon. But as I went downhill, even that faded away until I was blundering about in near total darkness. And then the moaning began. For a long time the notes were so low and quiet that I couldn't tell whether they were really there or something my mind was making up. Even when I was sure that I wasn't imagining the sound, it was still something that I felt rather than heard. It made the air colder, the darkness even darker. It spread in from the edge of my mind like ink on wet paper. It made me think of the stories one of the merchants used to tell about hearing ghosts on the boneyard road where Central destroyed our army. The sound drowned out the hopeful thoughts of finding water and a place to stay, replacing them with visions of being caught and tortured by savages or hunted by Central. It filled my brain with memories of every wrong and stupid thing I'd ever done. I saw the faces of Flex, of my mum, and, again and again, of the old agent under the bridge. As I went on, it got louder. Now I could sense that it was behind me. The way the sound came and went made me think of an animal moving its head this way and that, searching for something. When I turned and looked behind me, I could see a beam of sickly green light moving back and forth through the mist. So I ran, blindly, through the scrub. Before I'd got twenty metres, I tripped over a bush. I got back up on my feet and immediately stumbled over a rock. As I used my arms to break my fall, there was an explosion of pain from my injured shoulder and I let out a groan. Then the beam of light and the sound seemed to lock in on my position. I could sense it closing in on me. Pretty soon I could hear a hiss and crunch of machinery over the moaning. 
I picked myself up and ran on, and for a moment things got better. I found myself on a stretch of firm sandy ground. If it went on like this, I thought, I might have a chance. And then my foot went through the surface. It was the same as when I'd been with Flex. Sticky mud under a smooth crust. When I wrenched my foot free, my boot stayed where it was. I knew I was done for now. The light was too close. The sound was almost unbearable. Suddenly, I wondered whether there might be a drone up above watching me. They'd seen everything else. Were they seeing this too? Was there a cold glass eye recording my end, just like it had recorded my uncle's? Would my final moments be stored away in some archive in Central, or shown to the next traveller as a cautionary tale? But then I remembered the voice in the hut. You asked for help, and I'm giving it, the man had said. And then for the first time, I realised what he had been talking about. S.O.S., I said. S.O.S., I shouted into the fog. Then I tripped and went down once again. This time I fell into a patch of spiked grass. I had prickles stabbing into my hands and face and neck. I could feel other clumps on either side of my body. For a moment I was stuck, wedged in. I began to try to wriggle free, but the thing that was chasing me was right on me now. I could feel the impact of its feet through the ground. A huge jointed leg slammed down into the sedges a few feet from my head. As the thing bent over me, the noise became unbearable, soul-crushing. I began to imagine I could hear words hidden underneath the pulse, shouted words full of rage and contempt and utter hatred, words that said I was less than nothing and which stirred up the same feelings in me. I tried to raise my arms to cover my ears, but I was paralysed. I could sense the thing right over me like a spider squatting over its prey, something hard scraped along my back, and stopped. The sound shut off, leaving my ears hissing with the sudden silence. But as they recovered, I could hear that it wasn't quiet. There was another sound coming from the distance. It was singing. A woman's voice, crackly, as if it was coming through a crude amplifier. I could hear words about a light coming and darkness fleeing, about the sun coming from the east and setting in the west and coming again to bring a dawn that would never end. The monster answered the song with a roar, a sound that was even louder than that which it had been generating before. But it wasn't directed at me now, and it had a different feel to it. It almost sounded afraid. It began backing away. As the creature retreated, I felt the paralysis and despair lifting off me. I struggled to my knees and saw two white headlights pointed back through the fog at me, and silhouetted against their haze, walking forward with a megaphone in one hand and a sword in the other, was Eve. I don't want to say anything against Eve, but she wasn't a good singer. Her voice was husky and she couldn't really hold a tune, but as she came on, the monster kept moving backwards. For a moment it acted like a dog sizing up a bigger threat. It crouched and crabbed sideways, roared again, and then it gave a final moan and just galloped away into the mist. Eve met me halfway and transferred her sword to the hand carrying the megaphone. Come on, she said, putting her arm around me. Let's get you to the V. Thank you, I said, but I can't go with you. Why not? I just can't. What are you talking about? When I was looking at the monitors, Prack showed me something, uh, something bad I did. If I... She looked back in the direction that the monster had fled. For goodness sake, Chris, just get in the V. We can talk about it there. I let her bundle me into the passenger seat and slammed the door after me. Now, tell me, she said as she took her own seat. Okay, when I was a little kid, there was another agent who came to Spillen. He was living under a bridge outside town and I helped wild kids murder him because I wanted them to like me. 
And that's what Prax showed you on the monitors. Yeah. And you think, what, that that was meant to warn you off or something? Yes. Did he say that? No, but why else would he show me? Okay, look, this is pretty standard for Prax. If he knows you're trying to hide something, he'll call you on it. But it isn't to get rid of you. It's to give you a chance to come clean. It's to let you know that he already knows the worst about you. I looked away and caught sight of my reflection in the window. I looked wrecked. Chris, Crux is set up for people with the tox. The bad and the mad. That's what it's there for. If you swear allegiance and submit to treatment, they'll pardon you no matter what you've done. That's how it works. The moment that vector enters your bloodstream, you are a citizen of Central. The envoy will vouch for you and the Pantarch will look on you as one of his own. I closed my eyes and tried to take it in, tried to believe it. But what about that scan they do, where they go through your memories? They do a scan, but it's not to find out your secrets. They already know those. It's to check if you had the cure, and if it has made any difference to you. She started the engine and turned back to me. Look, I'm going to get us out of here. Why don't you think about it while we drive toward Crux? If you decide you don't want to get treated by the time we get there, nobody's going to force you, okay? Okay, I said. I felt like I'd been through a fight. Everything hurt, and my mind was still really hazy. But the idea of a pardon, of Central already knowing the worst about me, was beginning to get through to me. I still didn't know how to hold it all together. I didn't know how to square it with the stuff I'd read in the roadbook about the Pantark killing people. But I could see that if Central had wanted to get me, they could have killed me any time. Instead, Eve had come looking for me, had rescued me, twice now. Predica had fed me and treated me, and that guy had come and saved me at Horeb. I felt like when I'd rubbed the spit into my eyes and begun to see again. Everything was blurry, but there was just a little patch where it was clear. Now, right in the middle of everything, I could see the outline of something that looked like hope. I watched as the bushes and rocks went past in the headlights. Eve was driving on the hard edge of the bog, following it round a curve. What was that thing, I said to her, that machine back there? It was a desolator, she said. The cork built them before the war for psychological warfare. But most of them just wander around on their own now. Why did it run away from you like that? They don't like singing, especially songs like that. There are others, hunters, that aren't so easy to scare off. How's that shoulder? Pretty bad. I fell on it when I was running away. I think I might have pulled off the dressing. Yeah, you probably did. Well, hang on. We're just coming up to a place where we can cross the river, and then it's only a couple of hours to crux. She eased the car slowly down the bank and gradually accelerated across the cracked mud. I listened to the sound of the tyres squelching and tried not to imagine what would happen if they got bogged. This is just like the place I got stuck when I first left Spillin. Not like. Same. Same river. The law. It flows out of Lake Central. But this is all that's left of it by the time it gets here. Just a few boggy stretches. How did you know to look for me here? She laughed. Trust me, you're not the first one to do a runner after a session with Prax. And there aren't that many places you can go from Dodasco if you aren't going on to Crux. I figured you'd either take the track to the lease or end up back in the bog. Sorry you have to keep saving me. You don't need to apologise. You're running for the right reasons. Shows you get it. Will they really let let me... If you're ready to swear the oath, Central will give you the cure, wipe your slate and grant you citizenship. That's the deal the envoy worked out with the Pantark. We reached Crux as dawn came up. The base was nestled in a valley where Wicket Gap opened out to the low hills, just a cluster of tents in the centre of an old town. I wondered how it defended itself. Where were its walls and guard towers? Where were its guns? But the place obviously was defended. As we got nearer, 
We passed the debris of attacks, overturned pickups, burned out ram rigs, blackened helmets and body armour. Something had destroyed them. Eve shrugged when I asked her about it. Something always just happens to them. They fight each other or they get distracted. Maybe a weapon will explode. I guess maybe the skyships get them sometimes. The track brought us into a dusty parade ground ringed with tents, trucks and stacks of supplies. As Eve parked the car, people converged on us from all sides. Soldiers in battle fatigues and orderlies in medical smocks. Some attended Eve, others clustered around me as I tried to climb out of the vehicle. My head swiveled back and forwards as I took in their smiles and sporting arms. One nurse, who introduced himself as Beald, shone a light into my eyes and asked me a string of questions. Can you show me where you were hit? Can you feel that? How many fingers am I holding up? That's great. Do you feel okay to walk with us to the clinic, or do you need someone to carry? When I had managed to convince him that I could walk, Beald and another orderly by the name of Ben got on either side of me and guided me through the camp, pointing out things as we went. That's the mess where we all eat together. That's our library. We've got a communication stuff set up in there. Those guys doing the sword drills over there are the latest batch of recruits. They're about to go out on mission. The clinic had been set up in what had once been the town courthouse, its original purpose still visible in the shield with its lines above the door and its statue of justice with her sword and scales in the foyer. Even the judge's bench was still up the front of the main chamber. But the rest of the furniture had been replaced with stretchers and trolleys stacked with medical equipment. Down the front, facing away from the bench, there was a plain wooden armchair. Eve was standing next to it talking to a small woman with brown skin and a white doctor's gown. Come and sit down on the end of this stretcher, Chris, the woman said. I am Dr. Esme Clesia. We will have a look at your wound and then we will explain the treatment and terms that the Pantaka set out for us here in the territory. Beald brought me forward and carefully eased off the shirt that Predica had given me, now muddy and torn from my adventure in the swamp. Ben switched on a bright inspection light, and Dr. Clesia peeled back the dressing that Predica had given me the evening before. I'm sorry about the discomfort, Chris, she said as I flinched with the pain. Your back is quite inflamed by the toxin and the pellet lodged in your shoulder. It looks like it has been pushed a little closer to the surface, but it will make you very sick if it stays there. So we have a choice. We can either give you the cure which would counteract the poison, and then dig the pallet out later. Or I can try to treat the wound first and talk about the cure afterwards. Personally, I think the second option would be best, because it will mean that you will find it easier to concentrate when we go over the terms. But what would you prefer? I think getting it out first sounds good to me too. Very good. All right, why don't you lean forward a little more and we'll begin. I did as she ordered, reassured by feeling her cool hand on my skin as she explored the wound. I might have even found that part soothing, except for the things that she said to me while she was doing it. Eve tells me that you ran away from the base last night, she said. That is quite a common reaction among people who have spent a bit of time with Praxapa Tedesco. Was it something he showed you? I felt my face flush. Um, I guess so. Did you want me to say what? No, that's between you and the Pantak. I really just want to know what changed your mind so that you are here now. Well, Eve told me that Central would give me a pardon. Yes, good. She went back to probing my shoulder blade. And I thought maybe because it was the tox that made me do the thing that Prax showed me. I winced as a sudden pain fled in my back. I see, so you don't think tox-affected people are responsible for their actions? No, yes, I mean less responsible. She stepped back and waited for me to raise my head. But less responsible is still responsible, isn't it? Tox alters the parts of your nervous system that you allow it to influence, and that makes it harder to resist. But we still make choices. I felt a chill go through my exposed skin. So, are you saying... I'm just saying that the first part of your answer was right and you should forget about the second. Don't make excuses. Just accept the pardon. 
She turned back to my shoulder. I felt a sharp tug, and out of the corner of my eye, saw her holding something up to the inspection light. All right, Chris, she said. Here it is. I think we have gotten it out, but time will tell. As soon as we have finished tipping you up, we can move on to the treatment if you're ready for it. And suddenly, I found that I was ready. 